Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Our guest today is John Daniel Davidson, who is a contributor at The Federalist. Uh, Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So we want to talk about the border. This is something that's been in the news a lot, certainly over the past few years and even over the first few months of this year, because there seems to have been a spike in crossings over the border. I think I think we're looking at the estimate is at the current rate, there would be, uh, what was it, over a million projected apprehensions at the border by the end of this year, which is a big surge from what had been a kind of bit of a decline previously. So what's going on at the border? Why are we seeing this big surge in people crossing now? Yeah, so you'll hear in the news, and the mainstream media especially likes to repeat this sort of as a refrain that, that you know, we're nowhere near the historic highs of illegal immigration that we saw in the early 2000s. And they always point to the year 2000 as sort of the peak, which it was. There was about 1.6 million people apprehended crossing the southern border illegally in the year 2000. And so we are nowhere near that. And we've steadily kind of gone down since then over the past 20 years or so. The difference now is that the kinds of people that are crossing the border are completely different in terms of the demographics and the and the groups themselves than what crossed in the early 2000s. Back then, not only in the early 2000s, but going back decades and decades into the mid-20th century, most of the people who crossed the southern border were Mexican men who were crossing to work. And this was the vast majority of them. So the 1.6 million that crossed illegally in 2000, for the most part, those men could be easily deported, usually the same day they were caught. They would be caught by Border Patrol. There were some, uh, you know, a few forms, a couple pages of paperwork to fill out. And then they were sent back across the nearest bridge or the, you know, the nearest border crossing. What's happening today is totally different. We have a migrant crisis, mostly of Central American families and unaccompanied minors crossing. And these people are crossing and claiming asylum. And because of the way U.S. asylum law works, they are allowed to remain here in the United States while they pursue their asylum claims. And because of the backlog in immigration courts, which is approaching like 900,000 cases, they'll wait years to hear their asylum claims in court. And so essentially, they found out a way to get into the country and stay here for an extended period of time and with a, a permit to work, by the way, simply by claiming asylum. And there's there's features of US law that makes it difficult to deport people who are from non-contiguous countries. There are court settlements like the Flores settlement that prevents federal law enforcement from detaining children for more than 20 days. And so if you want to detain the parents of children, then you have to separate the family. That's where this family separation policy came in. This has been brewing for a long time, but essentially why we're seeing the surge now is that families in Central America have figured out and the smuggling networks that are profiting off this have figured out how to get into the United States by taking advantage of our asylum laws. The crisis is an asylum crisis. It's it's not a crisis of like a lot of people trying to evade border patrol, or it's not a crisis of drug cartels trying to move new and massive amounts 
amounts of drugs across the border. This is an asylum crisis. And the only thing that will address the crisis is to change our asylum laws. Let me ask you this, your explanation about the the cartels sort of turning this into an industry makes sense. But I've got a question about that as well. Is our rhetoric having an effect? And here's the reason I'm asking the question. I've made an analogy sort of casually that this might be a little bit like gun sales during the Obama era, where conservatives were afraid that Obama was going to come and take their guns away. So conservatives rushed out and bought more and more guns. Is this rhetoric that the border's going to close, you know, build a wall? Is this having any effect? Are the cartels using this as a sales pitch, like sort of get in now because you're not going to be able to get into the United States. Is that having an effect? Yeah, it is. And it works both ways though, too. So this all started in, if you look at the at the data at the volume of unaccompanied minors and families that, that showed up at the Southern border, it started in 2014. And Part of what kicked it off was DACA, President Obama's you know, executive action to protect from deportation a certain class of people who came to the country as minors. It didn't matter in 2014 that DACA didn't apply to people who were going to be arriving in 2014. All that mattered was that the word got back to Central American communities that if you showed up at the border or if your child showed up at the border, you would get a permiso and you would be allowed to enter the country. So this was used by smuggling networks to sell passage to the border. It was used by cartels to sell passage across the Rio Grande. And so that largely is what accounted for the surge. It was a perception in Central America that you could get in if you showed up with a child or your child could get in if they showed up alone. In the same way, we are seeing now the perception that it's going to be much harder to get into the US in the future and that it's easy now. You can get in now, but you better go now. And that is definitely playing in. So I think we underestimate the extent to which perception and word of mouth actually does affect what happens in other countries, especially in Central America. These networks, you know, people, families are in touch with each other. And so when one family group or one group of people from a a village or a community in Guatemala or Honduras successfully get through, you know, the word gets back very quickly. Yeah, this worked. What the smuggler said was true. We were able to claim asylum and, and we got through and we were released within a few days and sent on our way. But certainly the perception that that's not going to be the case forever is, is helping to fuel this now. Do you know, if we are doing anything to counter that in terms of radio ads, any type of messaging that would say, you know, sort of provide different message to Central Americans. Are we doing anything along those lines? You know, not that I know of. I mean, the now deposed or fired Secretary of Homeland Security, Kirsten Nielsen, did go down to Central America and speak with our our counterparts down there recently to try to all get on the same page. But the Trump administration is a bit schizophrenic on this in terms of their messaging. I will say back in 2014, when there was the initial unaccompanied minor surge, there was an effort made by the Obama administration administration to kind of clarify once they sort of realized, you know, that it was DACA that was what people thought was was going to get them into the country. Vice President Joe Biden went down to Central America. He made some appearances, made some statements, and there was a messaging effort to try to say, look, you know, there are no permisos. DACA doesn't apply to people who show up now to try to kind of stem the flood that was building at that point. I don't see the same kind of, you know, and that that was not a major effort. That was sort of a a half measure by the Obama administration. I don't really see any coordinated effort right now to get the message out there to people that, uh, hey, you know, don't take advantage of our asylum laws. And I think part of the reason is that they're right. 
you know, they can take advantage of our asylum laws. If you show up with a kid and you pass a credible fear test, you get into the country. So, you know, how do you message around that? Why don't you walk us through how the process for claiming asylum works, both how it's supposed to work and, and how it works on the ground. If someone comes over the border, either illicitly or through a port of entry and wants to claim asylum, what happens? Yeah, so there's there's a, a couple different ways it could happen. If someone crosses between a port of entry, in other words, they just... They they illegally cross the Rio Grande and turn themselves into a border patrol agent and they're with a child, they will at that time ask to claim asylum. You know, once they're taken in and processed and they'll claim asylum and then they will undergo what's called a credible fear interview. During that interview, which is lasts, I don't know, about an hour, the federal immigration official will try to ascertain whether or not this person has a credible fear of violence or persecution if they are returned to their home country. The credible fear threshold is a much lower threshold than the uh, reasonable fear threshold or the criteria that an immigration judge will actually apply to their case if it ever gets to an actual asylum hearing in immigration court, which very few of these credible fear claims ever do. Part of the reason for that, as I understand it, is that in order to successfully be granted asylum, you have to prove more than that life was just not that great for you back in your home country or, you know. That's right. You have to actually show that you will face persecution because you're a member of a class of people and that because of that, you're claiming asylum because you face persecution because of your race, your gender, your religion, your membership in a political party. You can't just claim asylum because you're impoverished and you live in a gang infested area and it's it's dangerous and violent and you were threatened or one of your family members was threatened by a gang member. That traditionally does not meet the criteria for an asylum claim. You know, that doesn't make you a refugee. If that were the case, much of the world would qualify for asylum in the United States, right? So this is what happens if they pass the credible fear interview, then they're issued a date to appear before a judge to initiate their asylum case. However, the person claiming asylum has to, once they pass the credible fear interview, they, they have to initiate asylum proceedings themselves. And according to federal data, about half of the people who are admitted to the country having passed their credible fear interview never initiate asylum proceedings themselves. So it's clearly being abused, right? Because these claims are never actually moving forward into the system. The other way to claim asylum is to show up at a port of entry. And that's the traditional way that, that people would do this. They would arrive at a port of entry somewhere along the border and uh, claim asylum there. And the administration is trying to tamp down on that by what's called metering. So they only allow a certain number of people per day to claim asylum at a port of entry. Uh, and they essentially sort of stop them on the bridge before they set foot on U.S. soil. Because once you're on U.S. soil, like people crossing illegally, you're now in United States custody. And that's why people saying, well, we just got to build the wall, aren't really understanding how the border works. The wall is not in the middle of the Rio Grande. The wall is entirely on U.S. soil. So people show up on the south side of the wall and wait to be taken into custody by border patrol. They've already crossed illegally into the United States. They're on U.S. soil. Federal law prevents Border Patrol or Customs and Border Protection or ICE from quickly removing them in an expedited removal back to Mexico because they're not Mexican nationals. They're Central Americans on U.S. soil claiming asylum, and now they're sort of our problem to deal with. I also noticed you you tweeted recently 
recently on sort of a similar note, but I don't think you were making exactly the same point. You were talking about the idea of closing the border, closing the points of entry and how it wouldn't resolve the crisis. But I think you had something else in mind there. Can you explain what you had in mind about closing the ports of entry wouldn't solve the border crisis? Yeah, essentially similar to what I just said. Most of the people who are showing up and claiming asylum are not crossing at ports of entry. They're crossing between ports of entry, essentially illegally entering the United States and then waiting for border patrol to come pick them up or just walking along like dirt roads, like until they encounter a border patrol agent and flagging them down. Uh, they're in the US. Closing the ports of entry isn't going to prevent any of the, the thousands of people per day now that are crossing illegally and flagging down border patrol from, from doing just that. In fact, you may encourage more people to do that. The people who are at the ports of entry trying to get in are just going to go cross illegally now. What closing the ports will do is cause massive trade disruption between the US and Mexico and disproportionately hurt the economy of South Texas. So uh, <laughs> uh, as, as Texas, as all of us being Texans, we can, I think we can all agree that's a terrible idea, especially because it wouldn't really affect the asylum crisis. It, it wouldn't have a measurable effect on the number of people crossing illegally. Yeah. It reminds me of the old saying with regard to gun control that uh, if guns are outlawed, only outlaws have guns. If you close the legal points of entry, then you know that doesn't affect- Yeah people who are crossing illegally, it just affects the people who are trying to trade or do other right. things. Illegally. That's right. And I think putting the best spin on the president's talking point about closing the ports, you might say, well, he wants to do that to put pressure on Mexico. Like if, if we close the ports, it'll hurt Mexico. It'll hurt the Mexican economy and maybe it'll motivate Mexican leaders to do more to stop Central Americans from transiting through their country on their way to the US border. And maybe that's what he means, but there's problems with that too since really what we're talking about in Mexico is vast swaths of the country where the government does not exercise effective control over territory. And so, you know, essentially we're asking the Mexican government to do something it can't do and putting economic pressure on them by closing the ports of entry. We're cutting off our nose to spite our face. You know, I think somebody said at one point it would be like shooting a bullet at Mexico and just ricocheting right off and hitting us, which is essentially what would be happening. We would be causing them pain. We'd be causing ourselves pain and we wouldn't be affecting the problem at all. I have a couple more quick questions about how the process works. So one is my understanding, I'm not an expert on asylum law, but my understanding was that people who want to claim asylum, if they're fleeing their country, that they're supposed to do that in the first safe country that they reach, right? So if someone was fleeing from Mexico to the United States, let's say the cartels were targeting them or something like that, or maybe there was a, uh, you know, in the old days when there was religious persecution, something like that, then, then, you know, fleeing to the United States would make sense. But if someone is fleeing from Honduras to the United States, they have to cross through several other countries, including Mexico. So is that correct that in theory, at least by law, they should be claiming asylum in Mexico? So I'll preface my answer by saying I'm not an expert in asylum law either, (laughs) but my understanding is some of them do, right? Some of the migrants from Central America, not all of them pass all the way through Mexico and cross into the US. Some of them do claim asylum in Mexico and, and are granted asylum. Mexico. But Mexico is not considered for purposes of US law a safe third country. And that's a designation in law 
that would qualify a country to be, you know, that the person would have to claim asylum in that country. So Canada is a safe third country. And we've been working for years to get an agreement with Mexico where Mexico could be a safe third country for asylum seekers. But we haven't been able to do that in part because Mexico isn't, in fact, a safe third country for a lot of these people. The Central American migrants that pass through Mexico are subject to a, a great deal of exploitation and violence. They're often held by cartels and criminal organizations for extortion reasons. They're kidnapped. You know, there's been reports that, you know, entire buses have been kidnapped by uh, gunmen transiting through Mexico recently. So ideally, yes, Central Americans fleeing their homes and seeking asylum would take asylum in Mexico, but we're we're just not there. And then the last thing, you mentioned the Flores settlement and how that affects unaccompanied minors or accompanied minors. Can you just give a, a yeah. little bit of detail about what the Flores settlement is and how that how that works? Yeah, the Flores settlement was a was a court case decided in 1997. Actually, the, the case began back in the 70s, but I, I won't go into all that. In 1997, a judge said unaccompanied children who show up on the border can't be kept in detention essentially for more than 20 days. Then they have to be transferred to the custody of the Department of Health and Human Services, who finds a sponsor of a relative or a family member in the United States for the child to go and stay with. The Flores settlement was reinterpreted in 2015. So in 2014, when the Obama administration was dealing with the unaccompanied minor crisis, they thought, well, we're going to detain these families and detain these minors in these facilities. And a judge in 2015 said, no, the Flores settlement does not allow you to detain families intact because you're still detaining the children for more than 20 days, even if they're with their families. And so that's what began the policy, what is called catch and release, where families come, you process them, you hold them for a few days, maybe a few weeks, but then you release them before the 20 days are up. And that's what controls our border and asylum policy now. It's not law. It's this court case from 1997 that was reinterpreted in 2015 to also apply to families, which is why you can't detain families for more than 20 days that have children in them unless you separate the families. And that's where the family separation policy came from. The Trump administration was trying to work around the Flores settlement and it blew up in their face and became this very divisive, very emotional thing for, especially for the media. But it was genuinely, I think, a terrible policy to, to separate families. And so they ended it. It was just not sustained. It was not politically sustainable. So that's what the Flores settlement does. It forces any administration to either separate families that arrive illegally or process them and then release them within a very short amount of time. But it is the case, I guess, officially, the family separation policy, that was, of course, for or adults who showed up with their minor children uh, right. accompanied. Also, the issue of unaccompanied minors, where you have, you know, a 15-year-old or a 14-year-old or, you know, maybe even younger who shows up on their own. Right. They're officially not being detained, perhaps. You said they go over to HHS. They also can't be just released on their own recognizance because right. they're a minor. So they end up in facilities, which, you know, certainly one of the strange things about when the family separation policy was going on is that a point of confusion was, you know, there kept being these stories about like the facilities where the separated children were being housed or whatever, and uh, what the conditions like were there. And actually, many of those stories were predating the Trump administration, certainly predating the policy, but they were about what was happening to unaccompanied minors. So people who just showed up randomly. So, right. I, you know, it, it sort of seems like it, maybe it's not technically detention, but 
in reality, I mean, they have to be housed in a facility and they're not allowed to leave. <laughs> they're not being charged with a crime. When the families come over, the Trump administration's zero tolerance policy was the parents have committed a crime by crossing the border illegally, which is a crime. It's a misdemeanor the first time after that, it's a felony. So we're going to charge the parents, but we don't charge the children and children can't accompany their parents into you know incarceration. We're going to separate them. The deal with the unaccompanied minors was that the reason that they started housing them in these facilities is because they were just overwhelmed. HHS didn't have like the resources to be able to find placements for these kids in a really timely way. And so they just needed time to be able to find a relative or a family member and then sort of do a basic level of vetting before they like released these minors into the care of, of, of adults in the United States. And so during that time, they would be held in some sort of a facility. I mean, not incarcerated, not being charged with a crime, but just... You you got to do something with them, right? You can't just let them go on the street, right? This is a new problem, by the way, the relatively new problem. None of the facilities on the border are designed for any of this. They're designed to hold uh, for short periods of time, single men from Mexico and then deport them. None of the infrastructure is designed to meet the problems that we're facing right now. The situation, as you know, is very complicated, a bit of a mess. And I think, as you've hinted, some of the attempts to try and respond to the situation by the Trump administration and even by prior administrations have, you know, been uh, counterproductive or not been the right way to focus, particularly on this new situation. Is there anything that can be done to try to deal with this problem? I think the immediate thing that could be done if Congress would act would be to simplify the asylum process at the border. Look, the, the fact is the vast majority of the people claiming asylum right now, the families coming across, don't have valid asylum claims. I mean, I think it's between 10 and 15% of Central Americans are actually granted asylum. Those are the ones who actually see their case through, right? Many of them will abandon their asylum claim and abscond before it actually goes before a judge because they know they don't have a valid claim. So what needs to happen is we need to change how we process asylum claims and make the credible fear interview much harder to pass or maybe empower USCIS agents who are doing the credible fear interviews to make a determination at that time, you know, so that only the people who have reasonably strong cases and, and who have a chance of actually getting a, their asylum claim granted are passed through to the next stage and put sort of on the schedule. That plus increasing our capacity for you know our, our immigration judges and the capacity of our immigration courts to deal with the backlog and sort of try to quickly process these people those changes you know i think would would make a big difference partly because word would get back very quickly to central america hey it's not so easy to get into the country you know people are not going to pawn their houses and go into debt to loan sharks thousands of dollars and spend basically you know everything they have to get to the us border if they don't think there's a reasonable chance that they're going to get in. And I think if people started not getting in because a federal agent was determining they didn't have a valid claim, you'd see those numbers go down quickly. So you, you know, you've laid out some sensible changes that could happen, but it seems like it's really been difficult to reach any type of consensus on legislation. Even with the Republicans, they controlled the White House and both chambers of Congress. They didn't pass any meaningful legislation that would have prevented this. So 
Why is immigration so difficult to reach a consensus on? Because immigration is a proxy for our culture wars. It's not about immigration. You know, there are ways, as you said, that we could reform our immigration system. But immigration is used as a cudgel by both sides. And it's not really about immigration. It's really about, I, I think, it's about whether or not you think you're a good person and and <laughs> and whether you think the your opponent is is a good person or a bad person. I think for those on the left, they see this issue as as an issue that proves that they're good people because they care about migrants and they care about poor people in Central America claiming asylum and the right doesn't. And they're going to show how much they care by maintaining this totally dysfunctional system that is bad for everybody. But that's not important. The important thing is they want people to come into this country so they can broadcast that they are merciful and compassionate and that they're good. And I think on the right, people use this issue to to show solidarity with their fellow Americans and want to show that they're patriotic and that they care about borders and they care about rule of law and they care about protecting American workers from low-wage competition from uh, illegal immigrants. And this is the issue that they're going to use to show that uh, and also to show how the left doesn't care about Americans. And so this issue is just wrapped up in our ongoing kind of tribal political life that is a, a kind of a zero sum game of moral preening on both sides where there are policy solutions, but I, I just don't think anybody is very interested in them right now. I've got a different question for you. If, if I recall, you've spent some time in some border towns. Is that right? That's right. So from your travels through the border towns, what are you seeing from Texans You know, living in border towns? What's their reaction to both whatever immigration crisis is actually happening, but also the national press coverage? Is the national press coverage accurately depicting what's happening in the border towns or what's their reaction to all of this? I think it depends on who you talk to. There's really a diversity of views on the border. If you talk to ranch owners and and large landowners, they tend to be pretty hawkish on immigration. They support border security. They they tend to support more physical barriers. That is the ones whose land does not <laughs> happen to lie in the path of uh, future physical barriers being constructed. But they tend to be pretty hawkish and pretty supportive of the administration on, on immigration. And that tends to be true a lot of times for public officials, for mayors and county sheriffs. You know, a lot of those people won't come out and say, yeah, I support the administration. They tend to be pretty pro-border security. And I think it's because these people deal with the fallout from an unsecured border kind of on, on a daily basis. And that's true, I think, even of Democrats. Now, you'll hear interviews with like congressional Democrats that represent border districts on CNN and, and in the media, and they tend to have not very nice things to say about the Trump administration. But their views on securing the border are pretty conservative. Uh, at the same time, you have a lot of people, you know, just regular people who aren't large landowners, who aren't ranch owners, who live in Laredo and El Paso and McAllen and Brownsville. And, you know, these are places where the, the Mexican city on the other south side of the Rio Grande is almost entirely, you know, integrated in some ways with the city on the Texas side. So, you know, you have like 10 or 15,000 people that cross from Nuevo Laredo into Laredo on foot every day to just shop and go to work or go to school or do whatever. Uh, so, you know, and, and obviously Juarez and El Paso, you know, many of the Americans in El Paso have half of their family 
in Juarez. I mean, the border patrol agent I drove around in El Paso with, like his father's family is from Juarez, you know? And so he has relatives over there that he goes and sees. So like, there's all of this like interaction between both sides of the border in all of these places. And those people, I think, are, are much less inclined to be hawkish about border security and, and about illegal immigration simply because in their experience, the border is a much more fluid thing. All right. We're going to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us today. All right. Thanks for having me. 